Hello and welcome to Sonic Sketchbooks. I'm your host, Gary Warner. Sonic Sketchbooks is an offering of sound art, art music and field recordings, mostly drawn from my decades of using sound in art projects, film and video, performances, installations, public art and museum exhibitions. There are also a series of guest episodes and this week's program is the first of two episodes with digital media artist, musician, programmer and director of the Innovative Sensilab project at Melbourne's Monash University, Professor John McCormack. John and I have been colleagues, collaborators and friends since the mid-1980s. He has a remarkable oeuvre of work, much more well-known and acknowledged internationally than here in Australia, and before the advent of COVID-19, he was always on his way to, or from somewhere, to install his works, present papers and lectures, or undertake an artist-in-residency project. And he's done this all over the world. This episode is a conversation about and examples from John's digital media installation project, Eden. In a second episode, we discuss his innovative digital music software, Nodal. So, John, you're a professor of Sensilab at Monash. Do, do you just want to quickly tell us what Sensilab is? Yeah, so Sensilab is um, it's a research lab based at Monash University in Melbourne. I guess we're, we're kind of in a, a faculty of information technology, which deals a lot with technology, but we're interested in the kind of phenomenological experience of the world. So kind of thinking about sensory information and the understanding that the senses bring to knowledge. So um, we're very practically focused. We do a lot of practice-based research and that involves building and making things, but also using, well, kind of integrating the mind and the body, I guess, to use that old Cartesian dualism um, in a way that responds to the world, the environment, to nature and um, to the planet. Mm. And so as part of Sensilab, which, you know, you're being, being very modest, you've you know, d- designed the project, um, it's a wonderful piece of architecture that's now there. Part of that is a sound laboratory, right? Yeah, so the design of the lab was really built around these different kind of sensory modes of engagement and sound being obviously really important. So we we custom designed a, a sound studio and worked with um, Roland Snook's studio, the architecture, um, or the architect Roland Snook's. And um, we've got a, a really nice sort of sound laboratory with spatialized sound and audio mixing. Um, and But also, you know, it links to the other parts of the lab that have um, more visually focused or bodily focused or movement focused or um, any any of those other spaces. So it's not just sound alone, it's sort of sound integrated with with other other modes as well. So we've known each other since the um, mid-1980s, I think, is when we met. And you've always worked with sound, right? I mean, you had a really strong interest in synthesised sound, I think, when I first met mm. you. I mean, as a kid, I my mum forced me to learn the piano. Well, she didn't force me, but she said, do you want to learn the piano? And I said, oh, yeah, okay. And so I, you know, I kind of had some musical training. But I remember my music teacher one day, she, uh, I mean, we, I just used to go in for lessons on the piano and play the piano. And I wasn't a particularly great pianist. But one day she got an electric organ. She said, oh, I've got one of these newfangled electric organs. You know, they've got, you can play different sounds on them and it's got... 
um, built-in effects and everything. And um, I said, oh, can I can I have a go of that? And she said, oh, yeah, I don't really understand how it all works, but I just bought it because, you know, it's for, for teaching. And so that was my first sort of electronic. And, you know, it seemed to have all these really interesting sonic possibilities. And I think I was... I was kind of more interested, not so much in the musicality of it, but more in the sort of timbral and the sort of emotional properties that you could get through electronic sound. Growing up, I built my own synthesizers and things, crazy, weird sound making devices and stuff like that. It was sort of a learning process about learning how to turn an electrical diagram into something that made meaningful sound. We had a, a piano at home that I inherited from my grandmother and much to my parents' shock, I sold it one day and bought a, a Korg MS-20 synthesizer, which is just a tiny little monophonic synthesizer, which I still have today. They were great instruments and you know even though you can only play one note at a time the sonic possibilities were fantastic and it had this um sound input and you could plug in an external sound input and you could do things like follow the envelope the amplitude envelope of the sound and um so you could create kind of synthesized sounds that responded to real instruments so i would plug in microphones and start making all these using these found sounds to drive the synthesis so it was a really really great creative instrument some of the first music that I was really kind of struck by of yours was your uh, the music you made for your Laserdisc project, Turbulence. I mean, it was the original intent there because that work was very much, you know, it was driven by this kind of idea of um, biological evolution and mapping that to computational systems and computer algorithms that simulated evolution and artificial life and those kinds of things visually. And the original idea was to create a sound system that worked in the same way. Um, so I remember when I was writing all the software to do all the visuals, I was thinking, how can I turn this into sound? And I sort of got three quarters of the way there. And because the project was just taking so long to do, because I worked on that project for about three years, I think. So I never really followed that path of completely synthesizing the sound in the same way that the imagery was was created. I mean, it was it was just composed in a, in a fairly conventional kind of way, just using the you know synthesizers and samplers and that kind of thing at the time. I mean, some people did criticize it a bit and saying you know why is it that the imagery is so 
you know, wonderfully kind of generative and everything, and yet the music is more conventional. Did this then lead to the Eden Project? Is the Eden Project the sort of culmination of that idea of a uh, generative sound system? Yeah, partially. I mean, I did after I finished the um, Turbulence, I did actually... I, I developed the system completely and started using it a little bit. And I wrote a couple of like technical papers on it. And some people actually went and implemented the system in um, commercial products and that kind of thing. Um, Eden was more a response to, I guess, the, I'd, I'd done another project in between then. And again, I was looking at sound for that. And it was just very technically complicated to set up. So I was using real-time generative sound with real-time generative video and... The story was that I, I had this exhibition at um, Bendigo Art Gallery, I think, and it was incredibly complex to set up. And uh, I remember spending the weekend kind of setting up, getting it all going. It was all working and then driving back and I had a, I had like a really bad fever. <laughs> and um, I got this phone call from the curator saying, oh, it's not working, can you come back? So I had to drive in the middle of the night or the, I think the next day back up to Bendigo with this incredibly sort of hallucinogenic fever and fix it and try and get it to work. And then I just remember coming back in the evening and thinking, this is, you know, this is really hard. It's crazy. Why am I doing, why am I making these things so technically complicated? So then, so Eden was more, originally it started off as being like a sort of a toy experiment. It was like, well, what can I do that's just a bit of fun and more playful and experimental rather than trying to focus on this very, you know, very complex works that were, you know, technically complex to to do and also to present. And it sort of grew from there. But then the idea that you had this sort of ecosystem of, you know, artificial agents who each create and respond to sound in some sort of semi-intelligent way became really interesting in terms of it as a kind of compositional tool as well as a an interactive experiment in sort of evolution and artificial life. You make well. a distinction between an idea of simulation and composition in sound, right? Well, in, in Eden, 
the there's a simulated ecosystem so there are these agents like you could think of them as like ants or something like that i guess they move around in a two-dimensional environment they encounter each other they encounter food which they learn to eat and to convert to energy and you know that keeps them going and allows them to survive and reproduce there's obstacles like rocks so if they walk into a rock it hurts them and if they keep walking into the rock it will kill them eventually it's like banging your head against against the wall but because they have a, a kind of learning system, like an artificial brain, they the ones that, that do things that are detrimental to their survival fairly quickly either die out or learn that it's not a good idea to, uh, if you find a rock in front of you, to try and move towards it, so you move away from it. And likewise, they have actions like being able to attack another agent that they meet. So if they're, they've got more energy than the one that they meet and they attack it, they can kill it and eat it. All of those things are fairly normal in kind of computer simulations of, of you know, ecosystem environments, for example. Um, and it's, you know, in, in biology, it's called individual-based modeling. Um, but what's sort of different, what makes it, I guess, a more creative work is the idea that they can make sound and sing, and that's an action that they choose to perform. And it's not only just singing, it's they can sing with uh, within three different frequency bands. So they have a very crude form of hearing where they can hear intensities in three different frequency bands. So you can think of it as like bass, mid and treble, if you like. And they can also make a sound in one of those frequency bands. So what happens is that some of them start using the individual bands that others aren't listening in as a way of communicating, and particularly if they're related by kin. So if your parents used that frequency, then you tend to use that frequency as well because you inherited the gene that said to use that, that frequency. interesting because it evolved um, over a period of several years through sort of responses to the way people responded to it in exhibitions. So what the work does is actually just sonify all of those sonic interactions between the agents and turns that into a musical composition. In the first version of the work, the sounds were just, you know, I just picked sine waves. I just said, okay, well, I'll just make um, 1,024 sine waves of various frequencies and the agents just assemble them together and that was that was really interesting but it was kind of difficult to listen to for a long period of time because it, it was harder to sort of work out the structure and for a human to listen to at least mm -hmm. 
And so the very first exhibition was at, I think, Kazula Powerhouse in Sydney. And uh, that was more like just looking at a simulation. So I had like a keyboard and a mouse and a screen projecting and just two stereo speakers. And um, I thought people might be fascinated by the whole sort of simulation aspect, but I think it was a little bit too opaque in a gallery setting. So I wanted to try and communicate the fascination of spending hours and hours in front of this computer screen watching these these incredibly diverse behaviours emerge and sonic behaviours and, and visual behaviours emerge and see if somehow people could appreciate that. So the next step was to kind of bring it from a screen-based work into a physical environment, so to project onto screens. So I was, I think I was invited by the Melbourne International Film Festival and it was set up in a, in it's quite famous, Cherry Bar in, in, the, in the CBD in Melbourne. Uh, and it ran for 48 hours continuously and the bar was open like all day and all, all night. So people could just come in, buy drinks and sit around and watch this thing and listen to it. Um, so I sort of deliberately chose a bit more of a kind of bar-oriented soundtrack rather than these kind of pure sign tones. So I used a whole series of pitch intervals that corresponded to sort of you know, pentatonic scales and, and so on, so that whatever sounds that they made, the creatures made, there would be there would be some musicality to them. So you wouldn't just get these kinds of random frequencies interfering with each other. So it was more much more musical. Um, and the response was really great. So people really just sort of sat there and, you know, drank their beers or their cocktails and spent quite a lot of time there watching it and listening to it.
So from there, I sort of moved to making these little sonic fragments that were still in the frequency spectrum. So there were bass sounds, there were mid-range sounds, and there were treble sounds. And, but they were just shorter musical phrases. And that also, just because the technology at the time to actually synthesize complex sounds and visuals in real time was pretty limited. So I was using a, I think it was a G4, yeah. Because it was driving two screens. So, you know, I'd gone from a screen-based work to using two projectors and translucent screens to kind of bring this two-dimensional world into the third dimension. Um, so you got you were driving two projectors and the sound had expanded from two channel to four channels. So it was spatialized according to where an individual creature was making the sound that would be spatialized to a speaker. Um, so the screens are translucent so you can see people through the screens and it's almost like they're sort of these, these things are like sort of you know simulacra floating in space. Um, and you know we added uh, like a fog machine just to sort of emphasize the three-dimensional nature of, of the graphics which are quite abstract and simplistic. Um, so it became more like it's sort of an environment and many people sort of told me oh it's like being in a forest or it's like you know being in some kind of natural place that's strangely familiar and yet not natural at all. Yeah, it was very beautiful um, it had a sort of a, almost a moonlight kind of feeling to it with the color palette that you selected for it. Yeah it's very sort of bluish and dark and um, that sense of the uncanny or the or the or this unusual but not necessarily sort of a dystopian or or threatening kind of environment more one of curiosity and the sound sort of emerged from there and then the final connection was actually tying the survival of the creatures to the presence of people in the space so if you just start running it from scratch the sounds are kind of randomly assembled together but over time the individual creatures learn that by uh, making sounds that keep people interested they increase the time that a person spends with the work and that is tied to the production of food in the environment so if there's nobody in the space all the food dies out all the, all the creatures die uh, whereas if there are people there if it's popular food has been generated the creatures get fed um, but they also learn by making sounds that are interesting to humans they have this symbiotic relationship that attracts them to the space and increases their chances of survival and reproduction. quite an interesting relationship right because um, you've actually got an artificial system 
that's doing something to attract people, even though it has no explicit knowledge of people or anything like that. It's just purely that if they make the sounds that people like, they're more likely to survive and reproduce, and therefore they they end up doing that. Um, which I still, you know, still for me, seeing the behaviors that emerge for something that I never programmed in, like none of this was done explicitly. It's all emerges through the way that the system works and runs. Is still quite a, you know, it's a really fascinating idea. I think it's really a powerful idea in terms of creativity and synthesis to think that you can write a piece of software that creates things that you hadn't actually put into that system. So it's, it's actually come up with these patterns through this interaction with an audience, not by the hand of the, the programmer who wrote the software. where Eden's been shown in the world? Quite a few in Europe. Um, I had one in the Canary Islands. In Asia, South Korea, there was a big exhibition there. Um, Japan, I think. There's a lot of interest in Brazil and the work was eventually acquired by um, uh, a, a gallery in, in Sao Paulo in Brazil. It's quite interesting to observe culturally how people respond to it too. So, um, you know, for instance, in Korea, uh, people were very polite and very sort of respectful of, of it as an artwork, so they would, would sort of you know, go in there and kind of ponder it and look at it. In Brazil, they would be touching the screen and dancing and doing, you know, with the music, they would really like be kind of moving with the music and everything and stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see the way that people respond to it. It really strikes me that um, Eden is uh, very much a sort of precedent work for the work of um, people like Team Lab, for example. You're exploring ideas that they're now exploring with much more powerful technologies and much larger budgets. I think sort of aesthetically too, you know, there's a lot, there's, they, they, they create these sort of installations and dark spaces using video projection and sound and interaction in that way. And, it, and of course it is a lot easier now that like the technology um, is, is so much faster and it's so much easier to do that. But back when this was done, you know, it's, it is 20 years ago it was a lot harder to get that real-time interaction, particularly when you're talking about machine learning. So you've got things that aren't just behaving in a preset way. They're learning, they're making sound, they're generating sound, they're generating imagery, and they're doing all of that um, fast enough so that it doesn't feel clunky or, or slow it was was actually a big challenge. I think that's the interesting thing, though. When you really starve for those resources, you learn how to make the optimizations, whereas now, because you're spoiled, you just kind of, you know, you don't worry about those things so much. 
Do you see it as a, um, uh, a current work, like it continues to evolve? Uh, I haven't really made any changes since um, it, I, the, you know, the, the version that went to the gallery in Brazil. There's been a lot of kind of tweaking. So after years of observing the way that it works and the way that people respond to it, there's a lot of subtlety in the interactivity that you'd never think of when you first, you know, when a, from the first exhibition. Um, and a lot of that's just to do with um, the way that it responds. So I've made it a little bit clearer that it's responding to you. So originally when you, you had to stand somewhere for a certain amount of time to really start to see things changing. And unfortunately these days, because people are just, they won't hang around for very long for anything. Um, or very, or, you know, some people will, but a lot of people just, you know, they see the sort of gallery experience as something that you just consume and move through. And you've got to see so much in a short period of time. So it has to kind of get you early on. Uh, just to sort of make the interaction a little bit more clear. So, and because the resolution of the cameras is better now and it can respond faster, it feels quite snappy. So you only have to just sort of walk in and stand for a few seconds and then you start to see the food growing around you. And the other thing I was just going to mention that they did, particularly in, it's very popular in a lot of galleries now, is provide accessible versions of the work. So um, for people who are blind, for the last exhibition I did in Sao Paulo, we worked on this tactile version because it's a very, you know, it's an audio visual work for people who are, who have um, all the senses. It, it does kind of engulf all of them, even smell because you get the smell of the mist. Whereas if you're vision impaired, for example, you're largely relying on the sonic aspects of it. And, but the sound is spatialized and it's quite, um, you know, you can walk around and get different, kind of pick up these different spatial patterns. So we provided this tactile version to, so people could actually feel what each of the elements of the work looked like. So the creatures had a tactile area and the food had a different one and the rocks. So if someone comes in who's, for example, fully blind, who needs assistance because they don't want them to walk into the screen, they have someone, a sighted person who helps them. They had a lot of people who were blind coming in on special tours and visiting and they really, it was really interesting to watch how they would feel everything and then wander around and they're obviously their, their sense of space is, is fantastic and they would really pick up on things that perhaps a sighted person wouldn't. You can find links to John's work and to SensiLab on the podcast website, sonicsketchbooks.net. Sonic Sketchbooks is supported by the New South Wales government through a small projects grant from Create New South Wales.